Hey, everybody. Welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. I'm Hithliday. I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. Joining me this week is one of the great ATQ writers, Thomas Matt Court. Good morning. Hello there. Uh, so, uh, you've had the great good fortune to cover uh, both the men's and the women's basketball team in recent weeks. Um, in what have been uh, up and down, uh, let's say, conference play. <laughs> yeah, sometimes uh, it's great good fortune, and sometimes it's like a real slog. Uh, well, I figured if anybody has any insights into why they're so up and down, it would be you. Um, although, I don't know how much <laughs> you can have an answer. Like, uh, it's sort of big shruggy shoulders emoji out of me. Um, the men's side, let's start out with the men's side. I mean, it's just been such a wild conference play for these guys, you know, like they, you know, they, they come out on new year's Eve, they come out and smash Oregon state. They look pretty comfortable doing it. Uh, then they go to Boulder and get smashed and look terrible. Right. Uh, then they go to Salt Lake City. They smash Utah, um, which isn't a ranked team, but they're, you know, decent. Um, yeah. Better than Colorado's. Uh, yeah well i don't know um Colorado is a tough team to beat uh, I, I actually think that for the money there, tad yeah. boyle might be the in terms of like how much colorado is paying him and how much their like recruiting clout is tad boyle might be the best pound for pound mm. men's basketball coach in the conference um wow. like if that if that boulder loss were isolated and the rest of the conference season were sort of going as expected, you know, a bunch of wins, maybe like a tight loss or two. And you're just like, ah, shucks like that, that Colorado loss, I'd be like, oh man, you know, whatever. Like I wave it off, but like, that's not what happens. Right. Um, right. They, they come back home to play Arizona state who absolutely thumps them. Like, I mean, just ridiculously. Then they take on number nine, Arizona and destroy them. I mean, Easily, I mean, yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, like it wasn't even close for 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 most of the game, you know, either. Then then they, you know, they route Cal, which like everybody ought to route Cal, uh, you know, and then, you know, they go over to Stanford, which ought to be a route. But instead, they're just like completely lifeless and they lose. So it's like, you know, win, loss, win, loss, win, win, loss, like uh and like none of them are particularly close either like all of them look like wire to wire like you know either the team looks great or they look dead um and like i can't detect a pattern or i mean like maybe if i i work real hard i could detect a pattern this ain't my beat that's football this is your beat what, what's the pattern slurms well the pattern is that the, the the team goes out and they have nights where it seems like everything works, right? They they get out there on the court and somebody will hit a three-pointer early uh, mm-hmm. or several people will hit a couple of three-pointers early and all of a sudden the game opens up for Oregon and the, the offensive end of the floor anyway starts flowing their way, which in in my view kind of ignites their defensive intensity a little bit. And also on the offensive side of the floor, opens up the inside game, which should be a staple of Oregon. There's, they've gone back to something we talked about early in the season, which is a couple of experiments it seemed like uh, Altman was doing with playing what we call two towers. So he's got Dante and he's got Nate Biddle starting the game together. Um, so when when they start off well and they're shooting well early, 
it opens up the inside game. And all of a sudden, you've got everybody on the floor for Oregon contributing offensively. And it that tends to get them to be a little more intense on the defensive end of the floor. And so they start building a lead and then they just they keep having the success and it keeps going well. Then you have these other kind of games, like the one they played at Stanford the other night, where nobody can hit a shot. Uh, everybody seems to have fumble fingers of one kind or another. They're throwing the ball out of bounds. They're clanking shots off the top of the backboard. It's just, uh, it looks like a completely different group of players in the game and it, it, when it, when they play games like they did against Stanford. And, and I, you know, I thought after they beat Arizona, uh, which – I understand why the team would get up for that game um, mm. for, for a variety of reasons, but then they go down to Cal uh, and, and beat them um, even worse than they beat Arizona, which I, is expected, I think, as you said, but then they go into Stanford where the team is one and seven in Pac-12 yeah. play and Just can't horrible. do anything. Yeah. No, so, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, the, honestly the you know just looking at the box score against stanford like um you know stanford has first of all stanford's box score is crazy looking um in in terms of their first half seconds half splits right Mm -hmm. so they are shooting 66 in the first half stanford is shooting 66 percent from the floor and 58% from, you know, behind the three point line, which are like yeah. the, those are crazy numbers. Yeah, That's like, world. Yeah. Th- they can't miss a shot. And honestly, right. you know, from watching that game and I didn't watch it like super, you know, intensely, I wasn't writing an article about it. I was, I was sort of distracted by something else. Um, and so, uh, you know, but you wrote the article about it. So I want to, you know, bounce this off of you that that sort of, you know, when, a team is hitting at that rate. I sort of, I have a hard time blaming the defense mm-hmm. for it because it just sort of feels like, oh, their hands are are just nuclear hot yeah. and like they just can't miss. Um, no, that, and that happened. I mean, I think that's a fair analysis of this game where, I mean, it wasn't every time, but Oregon did a reasonable job of rotating onto shooters. They had plenty of wide open guys too, uh, from, especially from the three point, uh, beyond the three point arc, but Oregon did a pretty good job of getting hands in faces or hands up. In yeah. The air it was just like, but just like they were unconscious, which yes. like, okay, that happens, but here's, but you know, but on the other hand, you know, the bright side, you know, for the Ducks is the second half Stanford goes ice cold. You know, they couldn't sustain yeah. that because right. of course they can't like, no, because, you wouldn't expect them to. So they, they, they then go ice, they go from nuclear hot to ice cold. They go, you know, from, from the floor, they shoot 35%. Mm. Uh, and from the three point line, they shoot 18%, you know, both of which are well below average. So they shoot super high above average and then super low below average. I sort of feel like, and again, I wasn't watching this intensely and I, and I'm again, want to run it by you, but like, it sort of feels like, you know, that game was like, the Ducks defensive performance probably didn't have anything to do with why they were hot in the first half. And it probably didn't have anything to do with why they were cold in the second half. That's just sometimes dudes hands are like that, you know, like I I have a hard time putting this on the defense. No, I I don't. When I, when I watch games and a team has a half 
like the one that Stanford had in the first half against Oregon. My first reaction is, well, this this can't continue. And it almost doesn't matter which team we're talking about. Nobody is going to shoot 66% from the field for an entire game or hit 58% of their three-pointers for an entire game, except once, you know, in a season or once in three seasons or something. And the, the disappointing thing about it is, despite how great Stanford shot in the first half, they were only ahead by five points going into right. halftime. That's that's not, I mean, that's an easily winnable game. You're talking about two possessions, if you can hit a couple of threes or a three and a two or some free throws or something. That's, you know, an easily overcomable deficit. But Oregon just never got rolling and they yeah. had a chance early, early in the half particularly they had a chance where they they had a couple of good defensive uh, possessions and stopped Stanford early on but then couldn't do anything with it on the other end and that just continued the whole game so like you know so Stanford on offense uh, has this crazy split between the first half and the second half but you know what it averages out to exactly 50% from the yeah. floor for the entire game and 39% from the three point line. They basically made one more, like one and a half more three pointers than they ought to have. Like a perfectly average game is mm-hmm. 50% from the floor and 33% from the free throw or from the right. three point line, right? So, like every shot that you take is worth one point. Um, and, uh, you know, Stanford on offense played a perfectly average game. You know, would it have been nice had the Ducks defense, you know, uh, you know, ratcheted them down. So it was more like 45% and 30%. Yeah, sure. But what, you know, that's a couple of points worth of difference. That's not, you know, what's affecting the outcome of the game. In my opinion, what affects the outcome of the game is is Oregon on offense who goes in the first half, they are, you know, 46 percent from the floor which is a little below average but like you say you know like you know they were only down by five it's not that bad um and and hell they were 42 almost 43 percent from the three-point line right yeah, you know which, they, which for this team is great yeah they were six for 14 um in in the first half uh now they cool down in the the second half from the three-point line to 25 percent. but you know what that averages out to six for 14 and four to 16 is 10 to 10 to 30 or 33 percent perfectly average performance you know from behind the three-point line uh you know the 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 they miss a few free throws you know i I don't love that in the second half but you know the free throw percentages is you know within norms here's the crazy thing like the absolutely nutty thing is the second half offensive performance is they're nine for 30 from the floor um you know 30 percent. like there it is there you know like stanford when you average it out their offensive performance is normal oregon's three-point performance is normal their first half uh field goal percentage is basically normal a little lower than you would like to be but basically normal it's not game losingly bad the but nine for 30 in the second half is there it is. That's the, you know, so yeah. like, I, I understand like watching this game, like the momentum of the game must've felt like what the hell is going on? Like this is a wired wire trouncing, but really it's just, it boils down to Oregon couldn't make a shot in the second half. So at long last, here's my question. Slurms, why couldn't Oregon make a shot in the second half? Well, that's an excellent question. And I wish I had a, a solid answer to that question because that is the the problem with this team more often than not is 
they're extremely streaky shooting. Yeah, they they just go ice cold in terms of shooting. Yeah, they they will like, I really like I, I go I've done this exercise over and over again where I look at the opponent's, you know, offensive box score and I'm like, that's, you know, whatever. That doesn't scare me. That doesn't make me feel like the decks got run off the floor. Uh, mm-hmm. But then I look at Oregon's shooting and it's like it's all over the map. You know, yep. there are games in which they can't miss a shot. There are games like this one where they can't buy a bucket. And I don't get it, man. Like, I, I really don't. No, and I, you know, what you watch them take these three pointers, and most of them don't look rushed. They're not Hail Mary shots. They aren't, it's not obvious that the guy's form is off or bad somehow. But for some reason, they just will go through this period, these periods of time in, in games and sometimes in entire games. That's happened as well, where nobody seems to have their stroke on for that game. And it's crazy, too, because you've got a bunch of guys on this team that like to shoot the three. I mean, you've got even some of your taller guys. You bring Wur off the bench or Ware off the bench. Those guys love to launch three-pointers. Um, mm. And there are just some nights when it's almost contagious through the team. They just can't make these shots. And the the problem with it is, and this happened a lot, several times in the Stanford game, where they'd want to go inside. Uh, to Dante, for example, and he'd be double or triple teamed every time yeah. because nobody had to respect the outside shooters. Right. Or, or that, I guess Stanford didn't feel like they had to respect them. Yeah. You took the words out of my mouth. Like, that's really what it looked like to me is that like, you know, Dante played 33 minutes. He only got nine points, but like, but of course he did, you know, like they, they could mob the, you know, the interior, you know, cause yeah. they're, you know, the shoot, you know, Cousinard, you know, g- gets 18 points. He could have shot a little bit better. Um, but like 18 points is fine, you know, for, for, for what he's contributing, you know, I soars. Okay. You know, I mean, his shooting percentage is actually, yeah, he was, good. he was the only, he only guy over 50. Well, that's not the goal, but he was the only guy over 50% from the yeah. three point arc in the game. Um, you know, whatever. And and like I said, I don't blame Dante because like Dante's sort of his scoring is a function of how the rest of the offense is doing. Um, Like if they're opening up lanes for to dish it inside for him to dunk it, then that's, it's, that's more structural than, you know, his production, you know, the, the thing that's just like, you know, sort of, you know, here's what's unacceptable is Will Richardson playing for 35 minutes and getting five points. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and Quincy Gary are playing for uh, 21 minutes and getting five points. Um, and, and, you know, uh, Biddle and Bartholomew combining for 36 minutes and 14 points. Um, you know, uh, uh, the, the, like, well, you know, really, I, just, I, I really just want to put it at the feet of, of Richardson and Gary. Like, uh, you know, those guys need to be leading the performance in terms of scoring, um, you know, not just because they needed to be generating points themselves, but like, you know, like I said, structurally, uh, you know, that's what opens things up so that they can, you know, put these, you know, psychologically demoralizing and folly Dante dunks, you know, on the yeah. opposing team. And that's right. not happening. And so it's no. sort of like, you know, we've been talking about for two years, like, you know, when is Will Richardson, you know, going to put it together? And I don't, 
where are you on that guy? Slums? He's, he's like, think? he's a lot like the rest of the team. And maybe, maybe that this is what it is. It's as he goes, the rest of the team goes, but he's had a couple of brilliant games earlier in the season when it looked, everybody's going, yeah, all right. He's fine. You know, he's finally growing in to the player that we thought he was going to become uh, when he came to Oregon. And, and it's just, it, the inconsistency is, is puzzling because, especially because in a game like the Stanford game, when you've got an opponent that is down, uh, is not as talented, can't should should not be able to stay on the court with you, that's the kind of opponent that Will Richardson should have a career game against. But you know, you look at his his score line in here. He had, as you said, he had five points and two assists. Two assists. Yeah. I mean, that you know, come on, that's. That's unbelievable, frankly, in 35 minutes for that guy who's very athletic and, and you know, obviously can dish, dish the ball around uh, all it, very well to have two assists. I mean, that it's just it's really puzzling what's going on with the offense. They just have never uh, they mesh for short periods of time in games and really show what talent they have i mean but that's the thing is it's such a ta- exactly as you say it's such a talented team that when it's clicking i mean I, I might not take any other team in the country you mm-hmm. know what they did to arizona was like oh yeah one of the most command performances against a top 10 ranked team that i've ever seen um and like and i mean I don't know, maybe Stanford fans are saying this about how Stanford thoroughly dominated Oregon. Why can't they do right. that every week? But like we we know what the answer to that question is, and it's a different answer to the question of why can't Oregon do it every week? You know, Stanford can't right. do it because it doesn't have any talent, and that was a crazy fluke game. Oregon can't do it because, I don't know, they alternate games between the best game shooting I've ever seen and the worst shooting I've ever seen. I don't yeah. know, man. It's a chemistry. Uh, it has to be a. The only thing I can think of is a chemistry thing, and that's kind of a fallback excuse yeah, for why things can't get done. But you know, they, they. I don't think anybody would say this team doesn't have the talent. For example, to have received a bid to the NCAA tournament sure. at the beginning of the season, you would think to yourself, if we're just looking at talent, this team is going to go to to the big dance. But they they for some reason this talent doesn't work together all the time the way that it needs to. All right. They've got uh, uh, Colorado uh, coming up uh, on Thursday in Eugene and then uh, Utah on Saturday Uh, from the way this is going, they should, uh, they're due to smash Colorado. So we're all looking forward to that. Right. (laughs) And then go against Utah. Probably. (laughs) Let's (laughs) stay. Well, yeah, but that'd be great because then they'd be back in time to smash Arizona and Tucson. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. Like, yeah, we, we have to. We, we got to decide which you know how, what pattern we want here to get the right wins. Yeah, exactly. The seesaw ducks. <laughs> um, uh, all right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the women's side. So. Uh, a little less baffling, but nonetheless, you know, pretty up and down, you know, they, uh, the, the, the women's side, you know, they beat, um, Washington, um, you know, the final score was a seven point win it was a little closer than that, you know, it was sort of a thriller of a game. Um, and, uh, then, uh, against Washington state, boy, that was a weird game. Uh, yeah, you know, just, 
totally bizarre, you know, in that, uh, you know, they, they, they have a big lead. They get behind by a big amount. They get a big lead. They give it up. They at the, you know, at the buzzer, they get a steal and shoot a basket that should have ended the game, but then the clock isn't operating properly, I guess. So that, you know, somehow gets waved off. I still don't understand how that happened. They wind up going, and they wind up going to overtime. Overtime's tough and they lose by a point. Um, you know, like really this game could have gone either way, although given the talent disparity, I mean, given the talent disparity, if it's a game that could have gone either way or you have to win on a buzzer beater against Washington State, then something's still wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I agree. Too? Yeah, I, I mean, again, this one. so one of the things about the women's team is very similar to one of the things about the men's team, which is they're, they're very streaky on offense. Generally yeah. speaking, their defense is, is pretty solid. But as you know, I go through and I'm charting this game as it's going along and, and Oregon will go two, three, four, five minutes without scoring any points at all. They'll have, you know, half a dozen yeah. possessions or seven or eight possessions. They get nothing out of it. Now, it that doesn't always hurt them because their defense is good and it means that the opponent may may not be scoring a bunch of points over that same period. In fact, there was a, a period like that in the Washington State game right, where exactly. neither team scored for like four minutes or something. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, but but it but it leaves them vulnerable to a team that can get it together and and build their own momentum based on Oregon's inability to score and, and push ahead of them a little bit. And that happened. That's one of the things that happened, I think in that Washington state game uh, when late, when they built that bigger lead that Oregon ended up bringing, bringing all the way back by, by the end of the game, they uh, that's what happened there is Oregon just kind of went a little cold from the field and couldn't, you know, turn the ball over a few times. The next thing you know, you're down by 12. So it's it, the two teams, the men's team and the women's team, have some similarities in that way. Well, I mean, like you said, I, you know, I think the major you know difference is the on is the women's side for Oregon. The defense is pretty damn good. So mm-hmm. like they come back and they 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 lose a game against Oregon State, you know, in Corvallis. Uh, you know, it's a tough place to play a rivalry game. It was only a three point loss. I'm not you know that broken up about it. Um, and you know, Oregon state's got some good players too. Um, you know, Mitrovich in, in particular is just sure. great. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, they still wind up doing a pretty decent job on defense against the beeves, right? Like they, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, even though Oregon state is fairly consistent, they're not having the like up and down problems The you know, Oregon, you know, still held, you know, the, you know, two quarters, you know, Oregon State was shooting at 50%, two quarters they were shooting below 50%. So overall, they're under 50%. Good. Uh, you know, three point, you know, performance, they keep them on, you know, at 26%. You know, like good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oregon's not getting into foul trouble. You know, Oregon State only makes four free throws. Uh, you know, like, yeah, good. You know, it's that's good discipline play on defense and not, you know, creating, you know, a bunch of extra problems. It just comes down to Oregon's like being, you know, super, you know, junkie on offense frankly Mm -hmm. like you know they they uh the number one they're not generating fouls uh you know which means they're not able to play defense with their offense you know nobody's ever in foul trouble against the ducks right um you know and uh you know three-point shooting is fine as i actually went 12 for 30 against the beeves you know which is pretty you know that's above you know 
yep. a third. Uh, but like, you know, they shot 33% from the floor. It's like, you're, you know, I'm sorry. You're not like, how did they only lose this game by three points? You know, if you're yeah. shooting 33% from the floor, like, and, and, you know, and at no point are they ever 50 over 50%, you know, like they, 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 they sort of come back and shoot close to 50% in the fourth quarter. But I mean, they opened the game three for 16 in the first frame. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, ladies, you ain't winning any basketball games if you make three baskets in the first quarter. Like, yeah. And that happens a lot. This this happened a lot last year to this team, and it's happened off and on fairly frequently this season, where early in the games particularly, they can't seem to connect from the outside. And again, I don't, again, I don't know if we're, if I don't think it's the, the same effort that the men's team is making to to open up the interior, although it, they, it helps if they can, obviously, because you've got, you have the, usually the tallest player on the floor, uh, inside ready. Right. Except there's uh, a major difference between Chase game and Dante. Right. Sure. Game, yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, she's Dante she's puts not, the ball down and Chase doesn't like, yeah. Yeah. I, which I, I she, really she, don't understand. I really don't understand why Chase not more of a shooter. And, uh, like it, it's kind of baffling to me. Well, I think she's her offensive game is in the development stage. I don't know how much confidence she has in, uh, you know, she she stood up. I mean, the last time I played Oregon State, um, she really stood up underneath and had a, a a very good game that time. This time, less so, and I and I'm not really sure why the, the team chose to do it that way she was she only took two shots uh the entire time against oregon state um got fouled on one on one other shot or on one of those shots so she got a couple of free throws out of it but they didn't really work that inside game at all and i mean mean, they took 33 pointers uh that's a lot of uh you know almost half their shots were were from beyond the three-point arc and the, in the first game against Oregon stage going back to the, their first Pac-12 game that was the game when India Rogers just went off just right. had a career game on almost every stat that anybody tracks and they didn't have anybody do that this time around and well, that yeah I mean that's the you know I I, I understand that that Van Sluten is is kind of injured you know and, and yes, she was right. you know definitely not performing at the you know anywhere close to all those sort of baffling why she was in you know as much as she was um you know given that uh given that fact um but like you know they're they're relying on players that I am not you know they're relying on Chance Gray and Taya Hansen to sort of bail them out right. um you know, you know, Chance Chance Gray has been a real up and down player. She's the leading scorer in this game. Taya Hansen's yes. playing off of the bench. She was the second leading scorer. You know, like Van Sluten's injured. Che doesn't shoot. And so, the you know, for me, the question comes down to like, where's Oregon? You know, shooters shoot. And, you know, Pow Pow had 11 points and, and Rogers had 12. And it's like, you know, if you're in that situation with, you know, Van Sluten and Che ain't going to shoot the ball, that means that you need to be producing, you know, 50% more, you know, points than that. You know, uh, Rogers and Pow Pow, you know, 12 and 11 points is just not acceptable from those two. You, you know, those are where the points need to be coming from. And they're not, you know, and it's not like indeed Rogers has an excuse like, oh, there's a really good, you know, matchup for Oregon State against her. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, she destroyed them the first time that they right. played. You yeah, know? exactly. Yeah, and it, and it's you know in this this game, I mean, when you lose a game by three points, there's a lot of things that could make the difference. But yeah, I mean, you, you got poor shooting out of both Rogers and Pow Pow. You're going to have trouble, uh, especially if you've got your your. Um, she might be the first option in Vince Luton, but one of your top three options is, you know, clearly not a hundred percent. Yeah, you, you got your stud injured and your big inside doesn't shoot. Like, and so you know, great that you get you know a nice performance out of Gray, who's sort of I think been inconsistent, and great that you get a good you know bench performance from Tay Hansen. But like your starting shooters in, in the structure of you know the way that Oregon's women's basketball team is constructed this year, you you. You can't have both Van Sluten be injured and unproductive and, you know, Rogers and Powhow have mediocre shooting nights like they yeah. need to be scoring um, like just period full stop. And they weren't, you know, and they and they did the typical thing that they start out with where they're ice cold in the first quarter. And that's that. And so, you know, sort of, you know, that's where the parallels resume between the men's and the women's side is like your hands can't be that cold. Like, yeah. You can put the ball in the basket. The same rocket science. No. <laughs> uh, all right. So the you know the upcoming schedule. They go play Cal, um, which you know Cal's team's not great. But then uh, they got to go play Stanford, um, which I don't know. You know, uh, up is down. Maybe the women's yeah. team will destroy Stanford, which is the number one team in the women's side of the conference. Like, I don't know. Probably. That wouldn't surprise me. I have to say, I mean, neither neither outcome. I mean, would, shock. It would surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk some football. Uh, well, at long last, I published my article about a new Oregon offensive coordinator, Will Stein. Hooray! Um, uh, it was a fun project. Um, I watched all thirteen games that he called for UTSA. Um, he's a young guy. Um, and what was really interesting was I watched him grow up, I think over the course of the season, or maybe that's not the right way to put it. I mean, basically the thing that was really crazy about UTSA's offense is that, um, it's like a very different offense or at least a different offensive philosophy between the first five games and the last eight games. Um, and, it, you know, offensive line injuries definitely inform that. Um, but it's not like their offensive line got it's not like they had a bunch of dudes out for the first five games and then they got them all back and they were just, you know, kicking ass from, you know, week six onward. That's not what happened. Um, it was really, you know, uh, it really looked like an affirmative decision to change up, you know, how they were going to sequence plays. And like, that really feels like, you know, that, that's Will Stein, you know, do performing some self scouting and saying we need to do something different. And then we talked to Greg Luca, who is the um, the UTSA beat reporter for the San Antonio Express News. Great conversation. I really Good. enjoy talking. To him. Yeah, it's on it's on your article. It's linked yeah. on your article. And it's excellent. Yeah, I always do that. I mean, that's a, that's how little I trust myself. Is you know, I, I gotta <laughs> I gotta watch every game. I gotta chart them. I gotta run them through the statistical analysis engine. And then when I come to some tentative conclusions, I then run them past a real expert uh you know for them to tell me how dumb i am um and only then am i willing to publish an article <laughs> you know it's funny he was he, greg had some pretty effusively kind things to say you know on twitter and then you know we he 
he retweeted it out to, you know, some of his followers. And so I've been getting a bunch of comments from, you know, San Antonio area codes, um, yeah, you know, and it's like, how are you able to do this? It's like, well, cause I took three weeks to write this article, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I spent and, hundreds of hours on this yeah, every year. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I took, th- I don't have to publish an article every day is the reason yeah. why, you know, I can do 20 hours right. with the film study and statistical analysis and charting, which apparently nobody else does for some reason. And, and, uh, you know, do this, you know, so anyway, the thing that I learned from this podcast that I'm, you know, very glad that we did, uh, is, um, is that that change in the middle of the 2022 season was not the only change. In fact, it was that, that, itself was a big change from what the 2021 offense was it's sort of that that crew jeff trailer is the name of the head coach and stein showed up he was the wide receivers coach for the first two years and, and sort of that whole coaching staff has been there since 2020 2020 they had a seven and five season that was the covid year and it's sort of like it's difficult to gauge that year yeah. for obvious reasons it's their first year and it's the covid year and they're still like figuring stuff out um it's sort of who knows. And so like, that's not great data, but 2021, they win the conference. They, they go seven, seven and one in conference, eight and one actually, cause they win the conference championship game. Um, you know, they, uh, it was a great performance. And what Greg tells me is that it was a really run dominated offense. And then it wasn't really super heavy into RPOs. It was run, 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 play action, run, 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 play action. You know, it was like they were taking deep, like their, their entire passing game was deep shots and it was deep shots off of a, you know, uh, you know, dominant run game. Now they, it was still like a spread, 11 personnel offense. So like, don't get it confused with Stanford or anything. Uh, right. But like, but still like that, you know, maybe more like, like Boston college when Anthony Brown was there, I wrote an article about that too, you know, where it's, you know, they, they have a really great running back. They have a future NFL offensive lineman. In fact, he's, you know, uh, the, uh, Burford is his name. He's going to be the starting center for the, for the San Francisco 49ers. Um, here. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, they, they have a great running back. They have a great, you know, offensive lineman. They lose both of those guys. Um, and then the, the, not only do they lose those guys, but the injuries start piling up starting in spring camp. That's what Greg told us. That's another thing that I wouldn't have learned if I didn't do this process and, and do podcast interviews. Um, so between the end of the 2021 season and the beginning of the 2022 season, they changed the offense and what they change it to is this, um, it's like it's not an air raid passing tree but it's sort of an air raid ish philosophy in that they want to methodically march down the field with a bunch of short passes the run game is basically non-existent and they're throwing the ball it's like a two-to-one basis that they're throwing the ball on um and like to the extent that they get explosive plays it's not you know they get some explosive passing plays through the air but most of the time their explosive passes are it's short passes and then their wide receiver makes the db miss and they get a bunch of extra yards because that's really the advantage that the team has, right is they have a bunch of really good wide receivers um and like i'm not joking like maybe potential nfl wide receivers which is that's that's sort of an asterisk that you have to put on with this team is that like, even though I think, you know, Oregon obviously is going to have very good wide receiver court too. Um, but like the gap between Oregon's wide receiver core and PAC 12 defensive backs is just not as, it's not as big as the gap between UTSA's 
wide receivers mm-hmm. and the conference USA defensive backs. And even like some of the out of conference teams that they played like army and Texas, they were just humiliating those teams. Um, Did you get any sense in talking to, to uh, Greg that this was that, that the quality of the wide receiving core had something to do with Stein's coaching of the wide receivers or are they just, were they just recruiting higher talents generally? And that was what was helping um, them be so good at it. They, all, every one of their, this is interesting. All four of their great wide receivers were recruited in the part of the 2019 class. So that's the year before, oh. um, uh, right. the trailer Stein crew shows up. Okay. Um, so they didn't recruit but, him. They just coached him up to. Or right. Exactly. He, that means that he's their coach during years. He's their position coach during years two and three. And then he's their offensive coordinator in year four. Um, although he switches his book to the quarterbacks coach for the um, uh, for for year four, which is 2022. Um, the the. Uh, um, I mean, obviously he has to have a big hand in developing those guys and they on paper anyway, you know, according to four seven, they're not super talented. You know, they're like mid to low three stars. Hell, one of them is a two star. Um, so, you know, this stuff can't be given credit for recruiting them, but developing them. Yeah, sure. Um, now that's not going to be Stein's book at Oregon, but like good to know, you know? Yeah. Um, the, the, uh, and similarly, even though he was the quarterback's coach in 2022, I don't really give him a ton of credit for developing Harris because their their quarterback, Frank Harris, because he had been there forever. Right. Um, you know, he he also, you know, was uh, he's going to come back for 2023 and I believe it's going to be his sixth year um, <laughs> at, at UTSA. So, wow. like, you know, hard to give, you know, Harris a lot of credit, although obviously sure. he's sort of working with him and the story of the season, if you view it narratively, which I don't really love our writing articles narratively, but I was sort of forced to for this article um, just because y- you have to, to sort of explain the switch up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh like, you know, the, uh, the, the story of the season is that after those first five games, you know, for, they, they don't have a run game. The offensive line just totally stinks. Um, and that means they can't establish the run. They can't do the play action game that they were doing in 2021. And they just generally can't even protect Harris long enough to, to set up for deep shots. Like he's scrambling a lot, like a lot, a lot. Um, and frankly, you know, for those first five weeks, Harris kind of bails him out a lot in terms of scrambling and, um, and, and just like the way that the short passing offense works is that there's, he doesn't have time for a post snap read. Like he has has to pretty much right. make the decision based on you know pre-snap alignment now stein is doing a lot in terms of uh, pre-snap motion to realign the defense to make it clear for harris where that where that throw ought to be but like he's got to trust harris i mean like that's not really saying much every offensive coordinator has to trust the quarterback but like yeah. But like the quarterback has to has to read the field and know where to throw the ball and he can't hesitate because like he's not going to have protection long enough. Um, So but then something magical happens in week six. And like I said, I don't really think it has to do with the offensive line suddenly getting a bunch of guys back who are, you know, just bruisers. Not like Burford came back from the NFL. It's not like, you know, their great running back, uh, you know, came back. Um, He he tried for the NFL and missed Um, the, you know, but what they decide to do is 
they switch it around again. So this is like the third different offensive, you know, mm-hmm. philosophy that they'll have had in, you know, in the course of seven games, right? The last game of 2021, <laughs> five games in 2022, and then the sixth game. So like those seven games have three different offenses. Um, they, uh, they implement a run and RPO based offense. And like the run game doesn't, I mean, the run game gets a little better. Um, it was, was you know which was nice to see but it was more like the run game was getting better because the because the defense had to respect the rpo you, you know like the, the yeah. um and the pass game got dramatically better it got eight percentage points more efficient and like it was all they were doing so like if it's you know what i mean like throwing short passes was all they were doing and like those tend to be the highest efficiency plays that you can get and so like to then improve on that efficiency, you know, rate by doing other things indicates yeah. the offensive coordinator is earning his paycheck, right? Um, so they run the ball, even though they're not a great running team. They open things up with the RPO, so that, you know, to, you know, make the defense wrong. And uh, they're, you know, the passing attack gets more efficient. It buys them more time for protection, so they can start hitting some more deep shots. They don't scramble as much. Um, and none of this is happening, in my opinion, because the offensive line got tremendously better. It was because, you know, they changed up the offensive structure and they did it without a bye week. They implemented like a, a whole <laughs> RPO based offense. And I'm not kidding. It tripled. Jeez. They tripled the rate at which they were running RPOs between weeks five and week six. And, you know, it's hard not to say, oh, my God, what an incredible job by the offensive coordinator. Um, you know, like, and for his first time ever, and he's young too. I mean, he was Louisville's backup quarterback in 2012. Um, you know, he's not been doing this for, you know, the coaching game for a whole long time. Um, so like, you know, that was pretty impressive. Um, and you know, uh, talking to Greg, he thinks that the offense that we saw in the second part of the season is the more, you know, more like what we'll see at a Will Stein in Oregon, if you, like the real, you know, mm-hmm. Will Stein. But even those first five games, you know, they're like, it, 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 uh, w- I was briefly considering saying just throw out the first five games because he wasn't able to run the offense that he wanted to. And let's just look at the last eight and grade him on that basis. But then, I looked at the entire year's, you know, numbers and I'm like, you know what? The entire year's numbers are still championship quality numbers, Mm -hmm. which means, you know, the first five games, which were not great. The last eight games were really great, but, and then the average comes out to be still pretty great, you know? Uh, so uh, like I was pretty damn impressed with the, with the guy, like, um, uh, it was a, sort of finally you know get to the end of this yeah it was a fun project you know a good 20 hours spent (laughs) no it's great it's one you know one of the things we've talked about before in in having a new new offensive coordinator cycle through Oregon regularly uh and it's not just offensive coordinators but it's it's coaches who can figure out how to get the best out of the player mix that they have and it sounds to me, and it's the amazing thing, the most amazing thing about this is the lack of a bye week to make the changes. That, that, that what he saw, he saw as a result of things that happened in games and practices that he figured out, oh, wait a minute, I can use these players in a completely different offensive set. And I think that we have a chance to be even more successful than we have been. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, the self scouting to figure out, you know, where who's my money players, who's my liabilities, and then what do we need to do to maximize the one and minimize the other or minimize the damage from the other? Um, like, you know, that's that's cool. Everybody's paid to do that. Um, right. The thing that is unusual um and and probably indicates that stein is you know destined for better things um uh like maybe being a head coach in the future i mean um or you know leading oregon in a great uh, you know season to season and then we'll (laughs) see i guess but like that's the spirit um, I mean that he had a great couple of seasons, you know, UTSA at the G5 level, and now he gets it at the Power 5 level, and I don't think he's going to fall on his face. That is all I meant by that. Um, um, Is that, like, is is that he wasn't stubborn about it. You know, I I have, you know, I do this for all these Pac-12 teams, and what I see, you know, over and over again, you know, sometimes in the offense, a lot of times on the defense, um, is... You know, folks who really only know how to do one thing. And so even if it's not a good personnel fit, even if it's not working, even if, you know, it, the, the, you know, like this week against this opponent, it, it, you know, it's not going to be the right thing to do. Uh, well, I only know how to do one thing, you know, all your problems. Or, or even, are- if I, even if I do know how to do something else, I'm not going to do it because I know my ideas are the best and that's what's going to work. Yeah. Or I'm not a good enough educator to install it for my, you know, dummy players to be able to <laughs> absorb. Um, and like, apparently this was not a problem for Will Stein. No, that's um, amazing. I mean, he made, he made not just one, but two, you know, changes yes. into the offensive structure. Um <laughs> Or not the structure. It's still, you know, it's 11 personnel, you know, spread offense the entire time. But, I, you know, like ch- change the philosophy, I guess, like how where your bread and butter plays lay, where how you sequence plays, whether you do RPOs or not, you know, the pre stamp motion, like that sort of thing. Um, and, and then and then like on the tactical level, it was really a treat to watch him introduce more and more RPOs as they go on. It's not like he just grabbed like the three real easy, you know, RPO tags and put a bunch of, you know, those easy slant passes or easy, you know, flat passes in. He starts doing some real interesting stuff, you know, to the point where I, I would not be surprised to find out that he pulled out some Joe Moorhead clinic tape um because there's a bunch of really joe moorhead stuff um and i was worried for a minute that i was like maybe i'm just seeing this because i'm primed to see it because i had years of film study on joe moorhead so i showed it to a couple other people that i know who are who 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 i know watch film and who were trying to pick my brain about joe moorhead when i was writing about him for oregon and i was like am i imagining this is like oh no that's totally joe moore that's power (laughs) soccer that's the triple option that's you know i was just like yeah man that's what i thought um like yeah it was uh it, it, it yeah so there's another behind the curtains like i'm never confident in my own convictions i gotta go talk to everybody else before i can write an article um so anyway the uh yeah no there's definitely some joe moorhead stuff and i and i think like not just stuff like joe moorhead i think he probably studied some joe moorhead film in fact i wouldn't be surprised if that's how he, his name got through to lanning is that they probably there's probably some like connections that you know in that way you know um uh, uh, so anyway, it was, it was nice because it, you know, it wasn't just like the most basic RPO stuff. Like he clearly sort of understood, you know, the, 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 
the binds that RPOs put onto the defense and then like how to use them. And in fact, there's some iterative stuff too. Like I put in my article, like here's two clips of, you know, the, the Joe Moorhead triple option that you'll be familiar with from watching it in 2021. And then here's one that it's the triple option play, but rather than it being the tight end slicing, it's a jet sweep to the wide receiver. Um, and it's like, Ooh, I didn't see that yeah. on Joe. You know, like, so, so yeah, I think he's got a, I think he's got a pretty good head on his shoulders and I, I think he's not just playing copycat. I think he's not just like doing what trailer told him to do. Um, I think he didn't just copy Joe Moorhead's tape. Um, yeah, you know, there's some real innovative stuff. Now there is, you know, one thing that's sort of an outstanding question, um, in terms of like, so Kenny Dillingham, I think the thing that really, you know, made me excited uh, about Dillingham um, and why I wish he wouldn't have done this is a really stupid idea to go to Arizona State, Ken, like uh, those this is a mistake dude um or i don't know maybe it'll wind up being good because everybody if it doesn't work out everybody will forgive him because that program is radioactive uh i don't know i'm not here to give you know career advice but anyway the thing that i really liked about dillingham although i don't know maybe it was landing beats me uh but i'll assume it's dillingham uh is the the mastery of the clock um, where yes. they speed up and slow down. They go on quick scoring drives or they go on methodical drives in order to control the clock and win the middle eight. And like, it was masterful and it wasn't just masterful in the way that Mario Cristobal was like a black hole of, you know, not able to do anything like that. You know, just by comparison is what I'm saying. Right. I mean, like a no right. objectively in absolute terms, it was the best I've ever seen in terms of clock management for making sure that you get points and then your opponent doesn't get the ball. Um, like, whoo, it yeah. was so good. And so, so, many, you know, so many halves ran out, you know, where the ducks kicking off to somebody that had right. 10 seconds at the end. Right. Of the half. Right. Exactly. And then oops, Oregon deferred and they got the, the <coughs> yeah, ball they to got start the, the second half. Right. And so now the game's over, yeah. you know, or, right. oh, ooh, that didn't happen onside kick, you know, or, you know, something like that. Right. You know, so like, uh, I really appreciate that at Dillingham. And it's the kind of thing where like, there's really no way for me to predict. Cause like, I wasn't seeing that stuff out of Dillingham. You know, I wrote two articles previewing Dillingham. I wasn't picking up that stuff when he was yeah. at Memphis and Florida state, you know, that was, you know, he got to run the show for the first time. And that's what, you know, we saw, I was like, okay, that sort of came out of nowhere, but cool. And I don't know if Stein is going to be able to replicate it. There's some evidence that indicates that, well, the evidence indicates that the UTSA was an extremely methodical team. They were not, very much into quick score scoring, uh, drives. Um, now the, the happy side of that is they never really did three and outs very, or very few three and outs, you know, basically they got their hands on the ball and then marched down the field. Um, and usually scored touchdowns. Um, or at the very least they scored field goals. Um, but they, you know, they had more 10 plus play drives than they had three play drives. Um, which is that's, that's an interesting number. Um, yeah, definitely. And, uh, and, and, and if you really want to control the clock, you need to be a variable tempo team. You need to be able to shift mm-hmm. gears and, you know, watching UTSA, it was like watching a team that was like pretty much always in third gear, you know, like they never really right. busted open the engine. Um, and you got to be able to do that. You got to be able to like slow it down to first gear. You got to be able to pick it up to fifth gear, you know, 
and so that's what I, that's for me, the big, I'm not really worried about Stein as a play caller. I'm not really worried about him being insufficiently analytically driven, you know, for all the reasons that we've talked about, frankly, just being a young guy is probably a big part of it. You know, honestly, I hate to sound ageist, sure. I guess about this, well, but like when I see the, you know, the hidebound folks, it's usually somebody who's got a gray mustache. Um, yeah. and, uh, uh, um, like, oh my God, uh, just quick story. Um, the, 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 so I did, uh, Arizona hired Don Brown to be their defensive coordinator a couple of years ago. Michigan had fired him as their defensive coordinator. Arizona picked him up and he was actually the defensive coordinator that I was worried about most in the entire pack 12 that year. Wow. Cause like he's, cause he's this, he's, he's a cagey dude. Um, you know, like he'd switch up between a three down and a four down front on the fly. And like, I couldn't figure out the pattern and it's a real oh, yeah. problem. If I can't figure out your pattern, you're doing something that's beyond me that or you're flipping a coin, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there is no, there is no pattern. <laughs> yeah. Right. So anyway, um, I was really worried about Don, Don Brown and sure enough, when Oregon played Arizona, like they, their defense actually performed fairly decently. Um, anyway, um, so guess what you, um, uh, uh, Oregon just hired, um, uh, two lanes, uh, defensive coordinator, right. Chris Hampton. And I started on doing some film study on them. Well, guess who two lanes first game was against UMass UMass's head coach is Don Brown. And so I was like, aha, a blast from the past. Oh, and I get to see what kind of offense Don Brown wants to run. He's a longtime defensive coordinator. What kind of offense does he want to run? The answer is they only run the ball. They have three different quarterbacks, all of whom only run the ball. They threw the ball four times, of which two were interceptions. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, man, that's what happens when you hire an old man with gray mustache yeah. who's on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, he's a defensive coordinator. <laughs> yeah, it's geez. like you're wow. going to get, you know, an offense that sets football back 40 years. You know? Holy cow. So anyway, that was, a, that was, that was me being ageist. Um, yes. uh, yeah, so simply because Will Stein's a young man. Um, in fact, he almost missed a game against UTEP because his kid was getting born, um, which is something that oh, happened geez. with Kenny Dillingham this year too uh -huh. is a funny like connection. Yeah. So anyway, um, the uh, uh, you know so, so what I've seen and what I know about him sort of demographically, like I do not worry about analytical questions. I do not worry about play calling stuff. I do not worry about running a type of offense that's incompatible with what Oregon's personnel or what they're habituated to. Like the install should be should go just fine. He you know is probably going to be a bunch of RPO stuff. Those are great. He's got a better quarterback, you know, a more talented, you know, right. quarterback to work with. Who knows what he's doing? He likes to trust a quarterback. There's no quarterback that I would trust more than Bo Nix. Uh, he's going to have a way better offensive line. Like, I don't worry about any of these things. The one thing that I worry about is, you know, is why was it such a methodical and non-explosively driven Mm -hmm. offense at UTSA in 2022 was that a situation they were forced into and was just yet another example of adaptation where what, you know, uh, like I, for example, I don't know how good UTSA's defense was. Maybe they wanted to keep the offense on the field the entire game because they were terrified of how terrible their defense was. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Could be. and like Greg didn't really have any good theories either about whether or not 
you know, what happens when he gets to Eugene? Is he going to be a variable tempo guy, you know, want to have, you know, quick scoring stuff? Or was that all ideological and he really wants to keep it slow? I, I mean, I have a hard time believing that just because, like, he's a young guy and a former quarterback, and those guys, you know, they like to make the offense sing. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I'm making a lot of, like, assumptions here. Um, But, like, that is that he's, you know, we, that, the staff is basically the same except for this guy uh, on the offense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so well, I don't know. There's some rumors that Clem might wind up in, uh, in the NFL. Okay. Well, again. I don't know. Barring but. further changes, at least it's not like last season where almost everybody coming in um, sure. it was a, an unknown quantity in an, in an Oregon sweater. Um, yeah. So no, I definitely, I you know, the head coach is going to be the same. The personnel is going to be the same. The wide receivers, running backs and tight ends coaches are going to be seen. Probably the offensive line coach is going to be seen, but even if it's not, it's not like that's a big deal. You know, like it's not like Oregon's offensive line didn't know how to do RPOs, you know? Right. Like, yeah, um, exactly. So like, yeah, you're totally right. You know, he's walking into a, he's walking into a good setup, yeah. you know, Solid and all the dem- definitely. What it's just, I, I, I cannot promise. I cannot say with any certainty at all that like that really cool stuff that you saw at Dillingham with, you know, the clock mastery. Um, I don't know whether or not Will Stein's going to be able to re- replicate that, um, yeah. or have his own version of that. It may be that he is ideologically wedded to, you know, long methodical drives. I, I don't know. Um, we're just going to have to wait and see on that question. There's no, there's no way I can answer that until I watch him play a couple of games. We're just going to have to wait. Yep. Well, yes, we do. Unfortunately. All right. Let's wrap it up there. Uh, talking for a little bit. Uh, you got any parting words for wisdom for us? I don't know how wise it is, but I'm looking forward to seeing if, uh, we can get solid footing under these duck basketball teams, uh, going into this coming weekend. Uh, yeah, me too. Um, you know, lots of great basketball still to be played. And frankly, like, you know, Hey, win the PAC 12 tournament. (laughs) All is forgiven. Don't, yeah. Don't, don't leave it up to them to invite you. (laughs) As for me, like I said, I started in on my two lane study for Chris Hampton. Um, I will wind up doing a relatively similar project and it will take me a relatively similar amount of time now. So (laughs) I'm, I, I'm off this coming week. Um, you know, while I'm still doing film study, uh, um, uh, but I should have a pretty crackerjack article for you. Uh, you know, when it's time to publish, I'm looking forward Fantastic. to it. Fantastic. All right. That'll do it for this week. Take care, everybody. We'll catch you on the flip side.